Thanks, Robert, and um, do please keep your Bibles open there in Matthew. If you have your Bible in front of you, uh, verses we're looking at will be on the screen as well. Let's pray as we prepare to look at God's Word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your Word. We praise you and thank you that in your Word, the Bible, we learn about you. You teach us about yourself and how we live as your people. You teach us about the salvation from sin that we have through faith in your son Jesus. We give you thanks for this, Lord, and we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you help us to understand what we're reading and help us to be growing as followers of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love weddings, don't we? Most people love weddings. You get to go to a a beautiful place and see people you love making promises that unite them for life. Uh, you've got the ceremony and the music and the celebration and dancing and it's almost always a happy occasion at a wedding. Uh, and the food, I'm going to admit right now that one of the main reasons I like going to weddings is the food. It's usually a meal or at least a pretty decent afternoon tea put on by the host, the speeches and toasts over the, over the meal. Uh, I think most people like getting invited to a wedding. Uh, some people like weddings so much they come even if they're not invited. Uh, Joe and I had this experience at our wedding. We had one particular friend who, okay, we'd invited to the wedding ceremony itself, to be fair, but we hadn't invited him to the reception. You know, the way it is, numbers are limited, so you nearly always have more people invited to the ceremony than you, you do to the, the reception afterwards. It can be a little bit disappointing when you're only invited to the ceremony, having to miss out on, on the meal afterwards. Well, this friend of ours, he had no intention of missing out on the meal afterwards. Uh, he wasn't even aware that we had only invited him to the ceremony. He, he asked my brother, Peter, uh, who was my best man, where the reception was. Uh, and along he came, looking for his seat. There at the reception, he made a joke that, oh, apparently we forgot to set a place for him. He couldn't find his place name. And he found himself a spare seat. Thankfully, we had a few spare seats and plenty of food. And he enjoyed the reception, uh, oblivious to the fact that he hadn't even been invited. Whoops, yeah. <laughs> uh, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus talks about a wedding that many people are invited to. A little different to our usual uh, experience of weddings today, though, because the people originally invited... Reject the invitation. Uh, and the invite goes out to many more people who accept the invitation, but some of whom are there when they actually aren't chosen to be there. Uh, the parable tells us the importance of accepting uh, God's invitation to heaven, uh, God's invitation into his kingdom. Uh, the parable and the whole chapter, uh, whole of chapter 22, tell us more about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' authority as the king of that kingdom. We saw in chapter 21, the authority of Jesus. As he moves towards the cross, Jesus demonstrates more openly and more forcefully who he is, the authority he has as Messiah. Only the Messiah could possibly do what he is about to do to save his people and bring them into God's kingdom. Uh, and Jesus' authority is shown particularly in relation to the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, uh, those leaders of Israel who are terrible leaders, 
Uh, Jesus demonstrates his authority in debate with them uh, and in telling uh, parables that demonstrate their fragile position before God, showing the consequences of refusing uh, to bow to Jesus' authority, refusing to accept uh, God's invitation. Uh, we looked at a couple of these uh, parables last week, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. And we'll look at uh, the third of these three parables we see in a row here. Uh, the third of these parables now, the parable of the wedding banquet. Uh, again, this is a parable, Jesus says, to show what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he tells the story of a king throwing a wedding banquet for his son, far more lavish, I'm sure, than uh, Joe's and my wedding reception. Uh, the invitations go out, uh, or actually the reminder to those who've previously been invited and those who are invited simply refuse the invitation. They, they, they refuse to attend, go back, uh, just, just go back to their daily lives. This is, this is a great affront to the king. All these people uh, have received the invitation. They've presumably replied to say they could come. At least the king expects they'll be there. And yet when the time comes, when the banquet is ready, all of a sudden they couldn't care less. Even after a second invitation, telling them that the, the oxen and the fatted calf are prepared, everything is ready, they refuse. And it's not just ignorance or laziness or apathy. Some of those invited even turn violent. Verses 5 and 6, chapter 22, verses 5 and 6, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. That seems like a gross overreaction but the king responds in kind verse 7 the king was enraged he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city a stark reminder of the consequence of refusing the king's invitation and this is what the pharisees and many israelites are doing uh, they are god's people the jewish nation uh, their invitation to god's kingdom came by express post of anyone in the world, these are the people you'd expect to be part of this kingdom. And when that kingdom arrives and the call goes out, they reject the invitation. They have Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, right there in front of them, and they refuse to accept him. They even kill those who tell them about him. They kill the servants of the king who bring God's invitation. I saw the same thing in the parable of the tenants last week. God's grace being treated with contempt by his own people. So the invitation will go to others. See what the king does next there from verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. The invitation is spread far and wide. Uh, at the end of Matthew, We'll see Jesus' command to the disciples to spread the good news of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And the wedding hall is filled with guests. Filled with the bad as well as the good, Jesus says in verse 10, it's not your goodness that gets you invited. The Messiah is a king who comes to save us from our sins. And those who eventually get to take part in the banquet are those whom the king, that's God, has chosen. Uh, those who are expected to come are no-shows and the banquet is filled with later invites. But even then, some who think they're in are not. Uh, some respond to the invitation on their own terms, not God's terms. And well, they find they're not actually on the guest list. Some may 
look like they belong, like the Pharisees who were good and obedient people on the outside, but actually on the inside, faithless and fruitless. They're wearing wedding clothes of their own making instead of being clothed with the righteousness that Jesus gives. God's invitation is based on the good works of his son Jesus. And you're either in or you're out. It's either heaven or hell. That ultimately is up to God's gracious gift. He is sovereign in salvation. Uh, Read from verse 11 with me. Follow along there. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Jesus talking there about what happens to those who are not chosen to, to attend. Uh, God is sovereign in salvation. Uh, now, when our friend came to our wedding reception 19 years ago, uh, even though he wasn't on the guest list, Joe and I didn't tie him hand and foot and throw him out. That would have been quite rude. Uh, he stayed and had fun like everyone else and everything was fine. But in the kingdom of heaven, you must be on the guest list. You don't get to stay unless you're chosen. And when it comes to receiving the invitation to heaven, you can be sure of your place if God has chosen you to be there. Uh, There's no greater invitation than the invitation to join God's kingdom. It would be fools to reject the invitation, as so many Israelites did. Fools to try to manufacture a righteousness of our own. To gain entry, we can only in by only be in by accepting the invitation on God's terms, by accepting Jesus as the Son of God, accepting Jesus as the King of God's eternal kingdom. Now, the good news for us today is that the kingdom will be filled with people from every corner of the earth. Uh, the great news for non-Jews, Gentiles, as the Bible calls us, is that the invitation goes out to us. We're the ones in that second round who God sends out the invitation to. And so if we haven't already, we need to accept the invitation, uh, relying entirely on the grace of God and Jesus' death and resurrection for us, not on any good works of our own. And none of this is what the Pharisees want to hear. Uh, The Pharisees know this teaching is about them and it only strengthens their resolve against Jesus. Uh, They're no more convinced that they need to turn and accept Jesus as king. They simply want to bring him down. And so the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders escalates. Uh, What follows is a series of challenges to Jesus. The religious leaders come to him with questions, trying to catch him out, trying to shame him in front of the people. Uh, And in the end, those listening will be left to decide who should we follow, Who who is the teacher worth following here. Should we be accepting the invitation that God has sent? Uh, Should we be accepting Jesus? The first group to come to question Jesus are the Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians are normally at odds with each other. The Herodians being those Jews who are sort of in the pro-Roman camp, support the king put in place by the Romans. Uh, But as Don Carson says in the commentary, Matthew commentary I've been reading, a common enemy makes strange bedfellows. Uh, their goal is simple. 
They want to trick Jesus into saying something the crowd uh, won't like. Uh, their, their method is quite devious. They start by buttering him up, sprouting a whole lot of false praise. Uh, but their question, when they finally ask it, reveals their agenda. Uh, their, their technique, it reminds me of the kind of technique used by car salesmen. Uh, you look like a smart guy, they say. Uh, you know what you want. No one's going to fool you. Uh, yeah, yeah, this one's, this one's a beauty. You know a great deal when you see it. Doesn't this look like a great deal? And of course, you want to say yes. But you've got to think before you answer because the more you agree with them, the closer you are to <laughs> being sold a dud or being made to spend more than you can afford. Uh, and the Pharisees do something similar with Jesus. Uh, follow along here from verse 15. See, see what they're doing here. And the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no, no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now there's the clincher. To pay or not to pay, that is their question. Uh, and it's designed to trap Jesus, whatever he says. If he says, yes, they should pay tax to Caesar, uh, or he keeps the Herodians happy, but the crowd will turn against him. Uh, but if he says no, apparently siding with the religious leaders, he's immediately in trouble with the Roman authorities. It's a cleverly designed trap, but Jesus sees right through it. He answers their question, but in a way that exposes them. He answers in a way that honours both human authorities and God. And his answer is so simple yet so profound that it leaves them amazed. Uh, have a read at what he says there from verse 18. Follow along. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? When they heard this, they were amazed. <laughs> and so they left him and went away. Underneath the Pharisees' question here is a resentment about having to pay taxes to the Roman authorities. It seems the tax they're asking about is a tax purely for non-Roman citizens. It's a real badge of their occupation by Rome. And yet, well, here the Pharisees are carrying, they've got Roman money in their pockets. They can produce a denarius when Jesus asks them. They benefit like everyone from the Roman authorities in different ways. And, well, all authority is put in place by God. The Pharisees know this. Jesus says, like it or not, you're under the rule of human authority. And whether you agree with them or not, you're bound to obey them, bound to submit to them. And this is not the authority that... Jesus has come to overthrow. The Messiah is inviting us to become part of an entirely different kingdom. And so Jesus honours uh, both human authorities and God's authority when he says, uh, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We'll think a bit more about what, how this is fleshed out and what this means in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but for now, the Pharisees and Herodians are left amazed and they leave. Uh, then the Sadducees come to Jesus and they have a question about the resurrection. They, they don't believe the Old Testament teaches uh, a resurrection after death. Uh, these guys are 
experts in the law of Moses. They get their question from Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, it says, if a man uh, dies without giving his uh, wife a child, well, that man's brother has to marry the widow so as to produce children in, in the, the line and the, the family name can be continued. And so the Sadducees put to Jesus this unreal almost comical situation where the widow marries brother after brother of seven brothers, uh, all of them dying uh, without children coming from the marriage. And whose wife is she at the resurrection, they ask. The Sadducees are saying that if Moses' law is right, then surely there can't be a resurrection. If there was, it would make lawbreakers of the seven brothers. In the resurrection, they'd all be married to their brother's wife. That can't be right. Jesus' response cuts their argument off at the feet. He flatly replies, verse 29, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now Jesus responds to them on their own turf here. He, he takes a, uses a passage from Exodus where God is speaking to Moses about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. These guys have been dead for hundreds of years when God spoke to Moses about them. But even hundreds of years after they're dead, God says... He is their God. Of course there's a resurrection. Of course there's a resurrection. But if life after the resurrection will be very different to life now, Jesus says. From verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And there's no response recorded from the Sadducees. Jesus has taken them on on their own terms and won. Uh, Matthew does tell us that the crowds were amazed. If they wanted to discredit Jesus in front of the people, well, they failed. The third interaction is slightly different. The next question comes from one of the Pharisees, and it's hard to tell whether he's trying to catch Jesus out or not. This question comes across a bit of a Dorothy Dixer. Uh, it's a serious question that gives Jesus the chance to teach profound truth. Uh, have a look again at the question uh, and Jesus' answer there from verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now remember Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees and Herodians. Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Or well, here, Jesus elaborates on what it is we give to God. Uh, if the denarius carries the image of Caesar, then it's clear what you're to give to Caesar. We're bound to submit to earthly authorities in this life. But we also submit to a higher authority that governs our lives for eternity. A denarius carries the image of Caesar, but the Bible tells us that people are made in the image of God. So to God, our heavenly master, we owe our very selves uh, all our heart, soul, and mind belong to God. All our, our love of God is, is what should guide every. This doesn't discount the fact that, yes, we, 
We, we do submit to earthly authorities. We pay our taxes. We obey the laws of the land. We, we work for the good of others because God has placed those authorities where they are. and We're to love our neighbours as ourselves, be good citizens. But there'll also be times when our obedience to God trumps our obedience to earthly authorities, and well, that might mean submitting to punishment for disobeying the authorities because we choose to obey God first and foremost. Like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego walking into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Submission to authorities certainly doesn't trump obedience to God. Uh, that'll be a topic that'll be good to explore in, in other sermons. Uh, but love for God and love of neighbour summarises all of the law and the prophets, Jesus says. And this is a love that the Pharisees lack. The Pharisees and the leaders of the people are caught up in appearances, uh, looking as though, making sure they look as though they're obeying the, every letter of the law. And they bring these questions to Jesus about the law, trying to trip him up, but they don't have love. They're the fig trees that look fruitful but are empty. They don't love God or people. They've rejected God's invitation to the wedding banquet of his son. They've rejected Jesus. And that is their downfall. And we don't hear any more questions from them at this point. Jesus has shown himself to be a teacher in another league, uh, more than a match for them all. Uh, Jesus is standing before them like Superman and their bullets are just bouncing off. Now it's his turn to ask the questions. Uh, Jesus shows them all how their vision of the Messiah, their concept of the Christ is far too small. Uh, verses 41 and 42 while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Now the Pharisees aren't wrong. Uh, they've understood that the Messiah is a descendant of King David. But they haven't understood that he's also far greater than David. Follow along from verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? It certainly didn't make sense in that culture to refer to a son as the Lord of his father. It doesn't make sense today either, really. That's simply wrong. It's a category error. But here in this quote from Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah, my Lord. So who is the Messiah? Well, he is the son of David. He is the king in the line of David. That's true. But he's far greater than that as well. As, as great King David's greater son, he is God. Uh, Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Uh, it was widely accepted at the time to be a psalm about the Messiah. And the authorship of David certainly wasn't disputed. Not only that, but... Jesus points out here that David is speaking by the Spirit as he writes this psalm, just in case there was any doubt in their minds about whether this was God's inspired word. And in it, David describes a victorious king who sits at the right, God's right hand and receives authority over all kings as judge of the nations. This is clearly about the King of Kings, the Messiah. It's about Jesus. And as David writes about the Messiah in this psalm, 
he calls him Lord. Jesus the Messiah is not simply the son of David, not just a man, but he is the son of God. The Jewish leaders and the people are being brought to the realisation of exactly who Jesus is. He has all the authority he's laying claim to. He's been demonstrating that authority in his miracles, in his teaching. And he is the son to whose wedding banquet we are invited. It would be crazy to reject that invitation. Uh, One day, all people will come face to face with God. The invitation will have gone out all over the world and all who are chosen will enter life forever in heaven. All who trust in Jesus alone for salvation will be saved. Those who don't will take the punishment themselves for rejecting God's Son. Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who died for us, rose back to life and rules now forever in heaven. Jesus is the the only teacher to follow. If you don't follow him, you need to. (laughs) He's the one who deserves Allegiance from our our whole selves, heart, soul and mind. If you do follow him, you need to share this invitation with the world. Show that love for your neighbour by telling them the good news of Jesus so that all people might have the chance to accept it and share it confidently uh, because we know who Jesus is. (laughs) We have the confidence of his authority and his power as we read about him in God's word. Let's praise God uh, for inviting us to the wedding banquet of his son. Let's praise him that we've had the opportunity to accept that invitation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are a loving and mighty God. We praise you because in the work of your son Jesus, you have defeated sin and death and made a way for your people to be in heaven forever with you. We praise you for this uh, invitation to your kingdom. For those who have not accepted this invitation, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts, bring them to a knowledge of your son Jesus, bring them to repentance and acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf, that they might be saved. For those who have accepted the invitation, Lord, who have put our trust in Jesus, help us, Lord, to be confident of the King that we follow. Help us to be confident that our faith in Jesus is the thing which gives us entry to your kingdom. Help us to be grateful daily for the invitation that we have received and accepted, and help us to share the good news of Jesus with others so that more might uh, be saved. We look forward to being in your kingdom forever, and we pray this, Lord, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.